0: Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Nashville, Tennessee, to discuss sedation and mechanical ventilation in sepsis.
1: Yes, my name is Christopher Hughes, and I'm an anesthesiologist and intensivist at uh, Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I'm a principal investigator in our Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship Center as well, and I do research on evaluating mechanisms, prevention strategies, and therapies for delirium and long-term cognitive impairment, um, and that includes sedative strategies.
0: Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, Chris. Um, today, we'll be discussing your article published in the NEJM entitled uh, Dexmedetomidine or Propofol for Sedation in Mechanically Ventilated Adults with Sepsis. So before we get started, maybe you could answer a pretty fundamental question for us: Why do we sedate mechanically ventilated patients, and what are the positive and negative consequences?
1: Sure, great question. Um, So sedation is one of our most common therapies that we give to patients in the ICU, and that's typically because to tolerate the ventilator, um, there's some anxiety and some stress that, from the patient's standpoint, that we want to accommodate. And there's often pain as well from, from our treatments. So, the sedation is meant to, uh, to help the patient tolerate the mechanical ventilation and tolerate sort of that anxiety and stress that comes with it. But what we found in prior years is that deep levels of sedation and certain sedative choices, especially benzodiazepines, have negative consequences. And that includes delirium and acute brain dysfunction, it also includes longer time on the ventilator being able to interact less, less being able to do physical therapy, and other things like that. Uh, and so we're trying to move to lighter sedation techniques. But, and in some patients, you may not even need continuous sedation. Uh, but sicker patients with higher ventilator settings are going to be on a vent for a while. We still are finding there's a, those patients will need some sedation. And now the question is which sedative is the best one to be using for those patients.
0: So in this study, you decided to investigate uh, dexmedetomidine or propofol. Maybe for our listeners, you can explain why you chose those two agents and what were the uh, uh, um, reported mechanisms for a proposed difference in benefit?
1: So each sedative agent in general has their own benefits and also side effects. Um, and we include. we know that some of those side effects include brain function, both short-term and long-term. Um, At the beginning of the trial, a number of studies had already indicated that dexmedetomidine was leading to better outcomes than benzodiazepines, but similar data between dexmedetomidine and propofol were lacking, especially with regard to acute brain function and then outcomes after ICU discharge, including survivorship components such as cognitive function and disability. So there are different uh, mechanisms of sedation. Dexmedetomidine is an alpha-2 agonist whereas propofol is a GABA agonist. And one question would be, since we saw benefits with dexmedetomidine against the GABA agonist benzodiazepines, would we expect to see those same differences with the GABA agonist and propofol? And even though propofol is a bit shorter-acting than benzodiazepines, that's sort of where the mechanistic differences are, and the type of sedation they provide is different with dexmedetomidine typically providing a more lighter level of sedation and uh, differences in sort of sleep dynamics, whereas propofol has the ability to to lead to deeper levels of sedation and maybe less interaction. Uh, But those different effects on patients that were um, sedated on continuous sedation, and especially with regard to brain function acutely and also survivorship outcomes, really weren't evaluated by the time our study was designed. Gotcha. So let's dive into what
0: your uh, primary and secondary outcomes were.
1: So our primary outcome was acute brain dysfunction, and we examined that by looking at days alive and free of delirium and coma. And we chose that because uh, you have bias due to death, especially in a really sick cohort, but we also have bias due to coma for over-sedation. So if we just looked at delirium, for instance, and everyone was in coma, that wouldn't necessarily be a good outcome. Uh, So we wanted to look at both you know account for both di- bias due to death and bias due to coma and and that's the outcome of days alive and free of delirium and coma, which sometimes you'll you'll hear as delirium coma free days so that was our primary outcome and then our secondary outcomes were uh time on the ventilator and we did that similar using ventilator free days to avoid bias due to death and then we looked at death at ninety days and then at Six months after discharge for those who survived is when we did our global cognition assessments and that the global cognition scores using a telephone interview for cognitive status was our secondary outcome and we had some additional uh, assessments that we performed that were sort of our exploratory outcomes. Great. So let's jump into your study
0: methods and how they addressed any limitations of any previous studies that had been conducted on this topic.
1: So this study, it was really built on some great studies, and uh, we just feel like it builds off of those studies. So the ProDex study in Europe was propofol versus dexmedetomidine, but that was a non-inferiority trial. It didn't really evaluate the risk of delirium or cognitive impairment, and other survivorship outcomes afterwards. And then more recently, there's been a couple open-label trials. So the Desire trial was in Japan, and that was sedation with dexmedetomidine versus sedation without. And uh, they also limited the dose of dexmedetomidine to 0.7 mics per kilo per hour, and they had a fair amount of other sedative use. So maybe not as representative as some of the sedation techniques that that we're using in the United States, for example. And they also didn't look at some other survivorship outcomes. And then similarly, the SPICE-3 trial um, in Europe most recently is a huge trial, landmark trial, but it was also open label, and they randomized patients to early sedation that included dexmedetomidine versus sedation that did not include dexmedetomidine. So not really randomizing to one agent or the other. And they had a high percentage of deep sedation, and the dexmedetomidine group had a lot of other sedative exposure. Almost two-thirds had propofol exposure, for example. So they didn't have much separation uh, between groups with regard to the sedative exposure. And then our study was a multi-center, double-blind randomized trial. So that blinding is really the key methodologic difference for ours that tries to address some of the limitations of those previous studies. And we blinded by having investigational pharmacists prepare study drugs in IV bags that were then covered with a black bag and black tubing covers. So this was different concentrations than what we use clinically. And our study drug could then be titrated just by a milliliter per hour rate up or down to meet the sedation goals. And so the bedside nurse was not blinded, um, but they did just titrate up and down based on that milliliter per hour, and the care team and the research team were blinded. And then the care team set the target sedation goals. So other differences from our study, uh, we included patients that were uh, having sepsis that require mechanical mechanical ventilation and then needed to have continuous sedation. The reason we focused on patients with sepsis here, where there was data support that dexmedetomidine has superior anti-inflammatory and also bacterial clearance properties when compared to benzos and propofol, and then also some prior trials. So the SEDCOM trial found lower rates of subsequent infection with dexmedetomidine, and the first men's trial found reduced 28-day mortality with dexmedetomidine in sepsis patients as compared to lorazepam. We also figured sepsis patients would require mechanical ventilation, longer, they tend to be sicker cohort, and would be more likely to need continuous sedation, and also have the higher risk for acute and prolonged brain dysfunction, which were sort of our primary and secondary outcomes that we wanted to look at. The other things that we did, we had research staff then assessing patients for the RAS, the CAM-ICU, and the CPOT level, for, for arousal levels, delirium, and, and pain, respectively. And then our team called these patients six months after discharge, and we did a full cognition battery, and also questions about physical functioning and quality of life. So, a little deeper dive into those survivorship outcomes than some of the prior studies. And I think another key point here is that all centers in our study performed the ADE sedation bundle, and we had very high compliance with the bundle. So, the trial was being conducted with much more up-to-date sedation bundle strategies than some of the prior trials, which I think is important given that we know how effective those bundles are, and we want to see if the sedatives were effective in addition to those to that bundle, as opposed to some of the prior studies really didn't control for that aspect.
0: That's a really good overview. So let's talk a little bit about um, side effects in terms of propofol and um Both have uh, important side effects that can occur in critically ill patients. How did you uh, monitor those, and when would you discontinue the study drug? And then also, could you maybe comment on the cost of these drugs, so the so-called economic toxicity of uh, medication?
1: Sure. So we tracked blood pressure and heart rate. We also were tracking pressure use as well. Uh, there were some prior reports about uh, potentially increased risk of ARDS in dexmedetomidine, which we did not see uh, but we were tracking ARDS as well as the safety outcome. And then triglyceride levels and cortisol levels. So triglyceride levels because of the lipid of propofol. So we tracked that at 7 and 14 days on top of if there was any other clinical reason that the clinical teams ordered those labs. And then for dexmedetomidine, there was some early data that has since been uh, disproved that maybe there was increased risk of adrenal insufficiency and so we are tracking cortisol levels as well for day de- um, 7 and 14 day 7 and day 14 for the two agents so that's sort of the safety profile that we were looking at we also track things such as uh self extubation and reintubation as well um and for discontinuation of study drug for the most part that had to be either because of significant bradycardia that required treatment. We allowed treatment once, and then if that continued, then we discontinued study drug. Uh, but those rates were extremely low uh, in, our, in our study. Other reasons to stop study drug would have been if there was sort of a new stroke or structural brain disease, uh, or if there was just so much hemodynamic issues with the agent that the primary teams thought they needed to either come off a of sedation or maybe have to use midazolam or some other agent that would maybe be less hemodynamic effective than dexmedetomidine or propofol.
0: And those are important. And in terms of the cost, uh, if, if, uh, here in the United States, uh, we're sometimes fortunate to be able to use rather expensive medications. Um, for those who maybe don't have that luxury, uh, are there any differences in cost uh, for uh, dexmedetomidine and propofol?
1: Yeah, thanks for bringing me back to that one. I didn't add that to the end. So for previous studies, dexmedetomidine was quite a bit more expensive uh, when you looked at just the drug costs, but because of improved ventilator times and getting patients off the ventilator and out of the ICU faster, you often recoup that and led to overall cheaper costs. That was mostly compared to benzodiazepines. Not as much data comparing that against propofol. More recently though dexmedetomidine has gotten cheaper and, and and is off patent and at least at our center there's really not much difference in pricing now between propofol and dexmedetomidine. So that may not be true at all centers. And but I believe now with the with dexmedetomidine going generic there shouldn't be much difference between at least in the United States between propofol and dexmedetomidine with regard to cost.
0: Great. Chris, I think you've given us a great overview of your RCT. So let's uh,
1: dive into your findings. Uh, what were your key findings, and how did you
0: interpret them?
1: So overall, we included 214 patients with dexamonatomidine and then 208 that received Propofol. Um, and just to give a little bit of background of the, of the cohort to put the, the findings in context, this was very high severity of illness, so Apache 2 scores of 27 and SOFA scores of 10, and that's what we would expect with patients with sepsis on a ventilator. And a third were surgical, and about two thirds were medical patients. But we started the study drug pretty early, so on average within 24 hours of the start of mechanical ventilation, and then we gave the study drug for a median of three days overall. And the median RASS scores while well on study drug were negative two with low sedative doses. So our median dose of dexmedetomidine was 0.27 mcg kilo per hour, and for propofol was 10.2 mcg kilo per minute. And I bring that up just to say that we were able to follow our protocol and had good compliance there, high ABCDE bundle compliance, as well as uh, lighter sedation techniques and low sedative, uh, low sedative doses, and also CPOT scores were tracked as well. So we felt like we were in line with current recommend- recommended light sedation approaches. So, and we also had, importantly, very low rates and low doses of the open-label study agents themselves, so not much cross-contamination of propofol and dexmedetomidine between groups. So in that setting, we found no significant difference in outcomes between the two agents. With regard to brain dysfunction, so days alive without delirium or coma, we found 10.7 versus 10.8 days within the 14-day intervention period, so no significant difference there. We found also no significant difference with ventilator-free days in 28 days, 23.7 for dexamonatomidine, and 24.0 for days for propofol. And we found also no significant difference for mortality at 90 days. And then with regard to the sort of global cognition and other assessments at six months, uh, we found no difference in global cognition using a telephone interview for cognitive status. And then the additional assessments at six months were also very similar with regard to functional outcomes and some of the different cognitive domains that were also examined And then the other thing that is important to note is the safety profiles. There's a little bit of differences in there, but overall the safety profile seems very similar, and the amount of organ dysfunction was also the same between groups. So they seem to have equal efficacy and also equal safety with regard to our, our primary outcomes.
0: So, how should we make sense of your study? Um, uh, You went into it asking the question as to whether there's any uh, brain dysfunction or differences in brain function after receiving these medications and it appears that they appear rather similar.
1: Yes, that's how I would interpret it. So I I would take these findings as these two sedatives are equally effective when you're performing up-to-date ICU care and that their safety and patient outcome profiles are also very similar including with regard to brain function, both acutely and long-term. And so I think our study really reinforces the current guidelines just recommending either agent for light sedation when continuous sedation is needed for adults on mechanical ventilation. So let's uh, dive
0: into a little bit of the details here. So um, you mentioned the guidelines mention using either um, uh, the dexmedetomidine or propofol, and and some may raise the issue, well, why not use both? Uh, Why not use a lower dose of each uh, and then minimize the so-called side effects uh, of both? Um, The way the guidelines are written, some may misinterpret it as using either one or the other. What is uh, your current practice, and do you think your study can answer that question as to whether to combine the two agents?
1: Oh, great question. So my practice is typically here, we start with propofol, and then if we're having issues with the trying to get that patient to the RAS0-1, especially near extubation, then we will often switch over to dexmedetomidine. Or if we're having to have you know someone who's on deep sedation, then propofol is our, our first-line agent. Versus some of the aspects with patients that we think have a high potential for either drug withdrawal or alcohol withdrawal or some of those type issues where the alpha-2 agonist or some reports about the benefit there, then we may go dexamethatomidine right away. Um, so I think that's sort of the, the, in general, where we're falling. But with regard to then using both of them combined, I don't think our study really answers that, and I don't know if the data out there really support that technique or really not necessarily disprove that technique either. It's just not really been evaluated. So I, I think the, the bigger point here is getting to the light sedation, and sometimes if you're titrating multiple different agents, like we wouldn't normally start two different opioids, for instance. Now, this is two different mechanisms, and that so is a little bit different here. Um, so I I think it is a potential. If you think the alpha-2 agonist makes a lot of sense and you, for instance, want a lower heart rate, because of either myocardial ischemia or some other reason, then maybe that's beneficial. But I don't think we have enough data, definitely not from this study or even from the prior ones, that say sort of the combination technique is superior to one or the other. But I also don't have data that says you can't use both of them together.
0: Gotcha. And then in terms of your study design, you aimed for light sedation and you defined it as a rascal of negative 2 to 0. But in terms of your results, you, you said the um, median was actually negative 2 and your interquartile range was negative 3 to negative 1. Uh, and that was following the ABCDE A, guidelines. So uh, the question I have for you is the goal was to aim for light sedation. Do, were you actually able to achieve it? Or do you think that just, that just reflects you know, the complexity of the patients you're taking care of with sepsis?
1: I think both. In in our case, if you look at sort of the RAS scores over time, we started study drug very early, and most of the time when we were starting study drug, the patients were fairly quickly after intubation and getting started on mechanical ventilation, and we know most of those patients start off probably deeper than we even intend, and then it lightens up through time, and that's exactly what we saw here. So I do think that is one of the reasons the median is at negative two, because initially when we randomized patients, our median at time of randomization was more at the negative three mark, and then they lightened up through the next couple of days. And if the farther out they went, the more that they were running at that more negative one type mark. So so I do think that is a, a part of that. And I do think that's also because of the severity of illness that we had with patients being sick on a ventilator and often with ARDS and on pressers, et cetera, meeting to the sort of longer ventilator times and potentially higher ventilator settings.
0: So you mentioned that a number of these patients were sick, and I think at study enrollment, uh, about 35 to 44% of them had delirium at enrollment. So, so what effect do you think that played into the long-term outcomes? So we know that sepsis, uh, similar to any finding that uh, true for COVID-19 now as well, that there are these long-term consequences of uh, inflammation due to the sepsis picture. How did that play into your uh, study findings?
1: That's a great point. So we have, if you look at our outcomes, we have a significant amount of patients that are scoring at or even below scores that indicate cognitive impairment. So we saw a lot of cognitive impairment in our group. And I think that has to do with the brain dysfunction that we saw and then also sepsis as well. Um, So I do think that's one of the reasons why we saw that prominent amount of cognitive impairment in our cohort. We just found that use of the sedatives didn't really change, at least that between these two agents didn't change whether or not that cognitive impairment developed.
0: So how would you look to minimize? I mean, it's pretty substantial. If we're unable to alter certain drugs that we're using and be pretty compliant with the bundle, what other strategies could we employ to reduce uh, this burden of brain dysfunction? Are we just diagnosing sepsis too late or is this just sepsis picture? What other strategies should we uh, invoke in order to minimize this burden on society?
1: Boy, that's a million-dollar question. Um, I can answer that. I can probably retire. Uh, so, I think the A B C D bundle is one of the best proven techniques that we have right now. And I do think early therapy, you know, early early identification of patients that are at risk and probably putting more resources into those especially high-risk, whether that is regard to even mobilizing more uh, or potentially trying to do some cognitive therapies in the ICU. We know waking patients up is, is great, but do we need to be doing sort of some cognitive therapy as well during that time, interacting with them obviously as much as possible? And then I think in these high-risk patients, you know, not letting them drop off just because they're leaving the ICU. So we, we know about PICs and we know about ICU clinics, but we're not, I don't think, using them optimally, both in terms of which patients and just number of patients. And so if we see someone that that is this sick or is having this brain dysfunction in the hospital, you know, having systems that trigger this follow-up so that people know to look for it, but also potentially doing things, whether it be physical therapy, occupational therapy, cognitive therapy afterwards, and continuing sort of that care paradigm both for the patient and for the family as they're progressing into their recovery. I think this is a process that's going to be months long for patients and not just while while they're in the ICU.
0: Yeah, we definitely need a whole bunch of more research and uh, there is a whole lot of research ongoing. We need to find a a solid interventions that improve outcomes. I want to turn your attention to um, this question of propofol and uh, increased body mass index. in your study, you noted that eight patients stopped uh, propofol due to concern for elevated triglycerides. Uh, what cutoff did you use for that? And do you have anything that could inform uh, the data for COVID patients? So th- We've noticed that a lot of uh, COVID patients are morbidly obese and uh, they often have a marked elevation in their triglycerides after starting propofol.
1: So we did not have a specific cutoff within this study. Uh, we were just monitoring, but that level was available to clinicians. So the the those were individual decisions by the clinicians that cut off often not study driven. Uh, we did s- sort of specify in our outcomes and safety analysis level of 500 or greater as a sort of a safety marker, and uh, and we hit report that in our appendix. But we didn't actually set a number. Of triglyceride that would lead to automatic study discontinuation. If we thought there if there was concern for propofol infusion syndrome or propofol-related infusion syndrome, then that would lead to automatic discontinuation of study drug, uh, but not triglyceride levels here.
0: Got you. And then my understanding was that most of the study was conducted prior to the COVID era, so. do you have anything from your study that you could inform uh, clinicians uh, the, who are taking care of COVID patients who have a sepsis-like picture and who are mechanically ventilated? My second from your study is that brexidex or uh, propofol could be used. Uh, any other words of wisdom to them?
1: So that's right. So we, I do think the results are relevant for the for COVID patients in the current pandemic. We did stop enrolling prior to the pandemic. Uh, but as you can imagine, COVID patients on a ventilator would have been included in this trial, and we did have patients with viral pneumonias and viral infections. So I do think the results are applicable to our current COVID care and our current COVID patients. And and we did allow patients to be on study drugs for out to 14 days, and we know these are often very prolonged ventilator courses and sedative courses, which makes the ABCD bundle and the sedative choice and all of the things that we're doing because it's such a prolonged period for these patients, even more important. I do think we're often seeing more deeper sedation, at least early, and because of the difficulty with ventilating and difficulty with sedation. And, uh, but from this study, it doesn't really suggest one or the other is beneficial. Just I think either is, is fine. And trying to do as much of that ABCD bundle during, during that time is also important. But I do think what we've seen is some of the prior, some of other observational studies out there have shown that benzodiazepines for, have been associated with increased delirium in COVID patients, and so I, I know a lot of folks have gone back to some benzodiazepines in COVID care because of difficulty with sedation. Uh, but with those outcomes plus our data here showing that you can use either of these agents, I, I would just strongly suggest trying to use dexmedetomidine or propofol, or maybe even a combination of the two, as opposed to going to benzodiazepines based on all the data that we have.
0: Yeah, it definitely gets tricky. Um, and uh, there are obviously some patients who need to be um, uh, chemically paralyzed and prone, and uh, we'd probably go more for the propofol route than the, uh, the dexmedetomidine route in those patients. Um, and then you run into the issue of them being morbidly obese and the high triglycerides. So it gets pretty tricky. How do you deal with those situations? Because it may be that we've seen that patients who receive benzodiazepines are having worse clinical outcomes from a neurologic point of view, but it may be due to the fact that those are the patients that are requiring longer ventilation because they have more severe ARDS. How would you tease that apart?
1: In this case, I think you start with fall. It, because you're right, you can't get that level of depth uh, and be on a paralytic with just dexmedetomidine. So you start with propofol, and then I do think benzodiazepines. You know, if the patient is very hemodynamically unstable as well as needing that level of deep depth of sedation, I mean that would be the case where we don't have another agent that is as hemodynamically stable and can provide amnesia as benzodiazepines. You know, so there is going to be a role in those cases. Uh, but the other option would be instead of doing maybe a continuous infusion of benzodiazepines, you can do propofol with just some intermittent dosing or even dexmedetomidine with some intermittent benzodiazepines in those severe cases. But if the hemodynamics are allowing it, then I think you're better off potentially doing the combination of, of having your propofol but then limiting that dose to avoid both propofol infusion syndrome or hypertriglyceridemia and then adding either dexmedetomidine. Of course, you can add some fentanyl or even some other adjuncts for pain and for other things as well that that may help sort of just overall reduce the amount of continuous sedation that's needed. There isn't great data, as we know, on antipsychotics for delirium, you know, but maybe that's better here than doing a bunch of benzodiazepines. So all that stuff, I think, has to be teased out. In my mind, I would go to either Propofol or dexmetatamine if it's a, if it's a lighter sedation, is capable. If you're having to go to deeper sedation, then propofol. And then if you have to be at deep sedation and are severely hemodynamically unstable on multiple pressors and, and think the propofol is contributing to that, then benzodiazepines. Now, as your, but try to limit that as much as possible. Use the gut when you can for PO medications to avoid sort of the buildup of the IV medications. And that could be with pain agents such as oxycodone or gabapentin or maybe even antipsychotic agents. If you are having a significant amount of agitation and delirium, even though we don't think that has has not been shown to make a huge difference in outcomes compared to placebo, if it helps you reduce your, if you're having severe agitated delirium and that helps you reduce some of your continuous sedation exposure, then that may be useful even though we don't have outcomes data to support really any of that at this point.
0: Gotcha. So I want to turn to this question of mechanism. Um, You had mentioned that uh, that there was a purported uh, uh, difference between the two based on the fact that um, uh, dexmedetomidine acted on alpha-2 agonists, whereas propofol was working on the GABA receptor, yet the benzodiazepines also work on the GABA receptor. So how did you um, reconcile the fact that uh, dexmedetomidine and propofol had similar outcomes, whereas dexmedetomidine versus the benzodiazepines benzodiazepines had so much uh, a
1: bigger difference. I think in this case, it has a lot to do with the half-life and the pharmacokinetics of the drug and the build-up, as, as we were sort of talking about with COVID patients, and that with the benzodiazepines, especially the continuous infusions, they just hang around for so long and cause just a much more prolonged sedation exposure than what we were often planning, whereas propofol being shorter-acting is even at the higher doses, will still clear faster than the benzodiazepine. So I do think that sort of pharmacokinetic profile and volume of distribution and things does drive a lot of this when you are on continuous sedation. It does also, though, I think, show you why it's really important to do these spontaneous awakening trials, to at least give some time with no drug going in, to clear some of that and allow the patients to, to wake back up and let us know where they're at before we start sedating them again. But I think that's really a big part of the difference here for, for why propofol versus the uh, versus the benzodiazepines.
0: And then maybe you could comment on the utility of. Um the preliminary studies, for example, we do a lot of basic uh, science studies, a lot of translational studies, um, which are used to support the randomized control trials. And it's been noted by some that sometimes a lot of these uh, preliminary work in the basic and translational work doesn't carry out into the real world setting. Um, what are your comments about that? Should we continue doing those studies? Um, or, or what did you as a group think about it?
1: I agree that it's unfortunate that we have a lot of basic science and preclinical work that supports something. And then we get into, into humans, and especially with critical illness, I think the difficulty is just there's so many factors that go into that. Um, and that it's not often just one, one pathway that is inter, is that can be corrected. It's so many different pathways, but then also so many different illnesses and insults that get combined into one. So really, I think, Maybe the term personalized medicine is overused a little bit, but the trials are going to likely have to, to see success or some of that translation, it's either going to have to be massive trials that are more pragmatic for stuff that we're sort of more commonly using, or it's going to have to be even more focused and less generalizable, where it's something about the patient, either a biomarker or very specific risk score, that will then lead to the randomization to one agent or the other, which then decrease the generalizability on the backside, but potentially in, and make it more difficult to find patients, but may actually give you a better chance of success. So so overall, I think it's just the, the milieu of critical illness and sepsis and how difficult that is and you throw ARDS and sedation and ventilators and all the different insults that go on, immobilization, uh, isolation, you know, you name it—nutrition deficits, et cetera. When you throw all those things together, it's so hard to find a big difference in outcomes, sort of affecting one pathway. That we're just going to have to either step back and do more giant pragmatic trials, accounting for all that, or narrow down and see if we can find these specific patients that may benefit because of these these very specific mechanisms that we can that we are finding in the in the lab. But I do think it's important to continue doing that because that does still give us an indication of who may be beneficial and who to study because, you know, these studies are costly and they take time and we need as much evidence as possible to drive what we're doing for patients. So, so I do think there is a role still. I agree. Um, So maybe we could discuss very briefly, we've covered a number
0: of the limitations uh, in your study already, but uh, one of them is the fact that it was conducted in the United States versus elsewhere. Maybe you could comment on that versus, and then as well as any other key limitations that we haven't covered thus far.
1: Yeah, so there's definitely different workflows in the United States from the nursing workflow, respiratory therapists, physical therapists, and attending. So all those things, I do think lead to differences in how sedation and critical care is generally performed compared to other countries. Uh, so I do think that is relevant when you're interpreting these different studies, including some of the no-sedation studies versus sedation and uh, and then some of the continuous sedation studies out there, just because that delivery does look different versus with the different care practices. Uh, other limitations we did have, An episode of unblinding of either the clinician or the research team in 14% of patients. Uh, we think that's good compared, compared to obviously what else has been done, but also given the physical differences in the, in the agents themselves. Uh, there was some cross contamination of with you, so, you know, it wasn't zero, but it was very low and it was better than all the open label trials, so, you know, take that, take that for what it is. We did have to resize our trial. We did be, we had slower than anticipated enrollment, so we, we targeted 530 up front. We, we ended up resizing to 420, which was approved by the DSMB and the NIH, and it still gave us 85% power for the brain function outcomes and over 80% power for mortality and global cognition. So we still think we had plenty of power there, uh, but we did have slower than anticipated enrollment. And some of that was due to the exclusions, for clinicians refusing to enroll for a given patient. Now, this was mostly, it seems anyways, mostly from when patients were having a difficult course with hemodynamics, ventilator, fi- family dynamics, or, you know, other reasons. And so the team didn't really want to add another layer of complexity of not knowing what sedative the patient was on. But we did have a few cases where the attending really thought one drug or the other was better for the individual patient. So those exclusions you know, potentially reduce our generalizability some, but I will say we we included patients from over 13, from 13 centers across the United States, and we feel like we overall had a good representation of septic patients on mechanical ventilation. Um, but those would be the sort of limitations that stand out to to us to know about for the study.
0: Agree. And then, how do your findings advance clinical practice? And bearing that in mind, uh, what additional studies do you think need to be conducted to um, answer unanswered questions from your study?
1: For most patients, it appears either agent would be acceptable. So clinical decisions, I think, will come now down to which of the two agents the team in the ICU are more comfortable with and have more experience with using, along with if there is a cost difference at your center. Uh, But if the patient is requiring deeper levels of sedation, or have to hit the administration neuromuscular blockade, then propofol would be more important, whereas I think using the reduction in heart rate commonly seen with dexmedetomidine, using that to benefit patients with tachycardia or maybe at risk for myocardial ischemia. So those side, so specific side effect profiles may have benefit in select patients and guide that decision, but in general, either agent seems appropriate for the vast majority of ICU patients. And that includes with regard to brain function and survivorship outcomes, which are becoming more and more important for our patients. Additional topics needing evaluation will be, in this specific study, what difference in inflammatory and other injury pathway differences between the two agents to see if that maybe targets future studies of which patients may benefit or not. I think other studies are warranted with regard to more specific patient populations, for example, maybe after cardiac surgery or transplant surgery or maybe patients with neurologic injury, all these things that were not included in in these sort of general ICU studies that that potentially these different mechanisms may have specific benefits for. Uh, Our next studies will be looking at the inflammatory profile differences. We'll be looking at some of the inflammatory profile differences to help explain potentially which patients may have benefited or didn't benefit or why there wasn't a difference here in our study. And then I think there are some potential newer sedation options to evaluate that potentially includes using inhaled anesthetics for short periods of time, or there's even newer agents being developed, including GABA agonists that are also very short-acting that may be useful for these patients as well. That may have some more hemodynamic stability compared to dexmedetomidine or propofol. So, so I do think there's going to be other other studies coming down the line and additional agents to to bring into question to evaluate as well.
0: Great, and we'll be looking after them. And uh, wish you and uh, all the other teams uh, all the best, um, Chris. You've been very generous with your time, and uh, thank you for uh, discussing your article. Um, are there any other um, uh, questions that came up during the uh, preparation for this podcast? or Any other comments that you want to leave our audience with?
1: Well, I just want to say thank you to the audience. If you're listening to this podcast, it's because you're interested in critical care and, and taking care of our patients and this last year's been crazy, as we all know, and and it's, I mean, it makes me really proud to be an intensivist and and take care of these patients, and uh, to be able to participate in studies like this. That you know, we're taking care of the sickest of the sick, and we're being challenged even more now, and we we should be evaluating every single thing we do to to figure out there's a way to be doing it better, and you know, a shout out to to all the people that were involved in this study, including all the different centers, but also the patients. You know, they, we were enrolling patients when they were sick and very vulnerable, obviously, and, you know, for them to place their trust in us and realize this is an important question to study. So we have to say really thank you to them uh, because it is important to, to figure out these answers and, um, and, and just what we're doing based on, based on important clinical trials that have, you know, sound methodologic rigor. And uh, overall, I think that's the... That's the big things that come up, and, and I just want to say thank you to everyone out there listening, but also to the to the patients and to the centers that perform this trial.
0: Definitely a very big uh, kudos to um, investigators, the patients, and to the clinicians, and in, in, in addition to the nurses and the speech therapists. Chris, uh, a really outstanding paper uh, for our audience. Uh, we discussed uh, his NEJM article entitled Dexmedetomidine or Propofol for Sedation in Mechanically Ventilated Adults with Tapsus. Um Congratulations to your team, Chris, and we wish you all the best. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. A big thank you to Dr. Hughes, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.